I would not be surprised to see Donald Trump running again for election in 2024. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hello, I'm Andy Gawthorpe, a historian and columnist, and I'm the host of America Explained. We've got a great episode coming up today, but first I'd like to tell you just a little bit about the show. America Explained is a new podcast. It's a family-run podcast, just like Grandma and Grandpa used to listen to. And that means we're starting out small, and we'd really benefit from your help as we try to grow the show. Please remember to subscribe to America Explained so you always see new episodes in your feed. There's also an America Explained Facebook page, where we post written commentary, and where we're building an international community of listeners. If you really want to help us grow, consider leaving us a 5-star review in iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use. This helps us find new listeners and it's a great way to grow the podcast. We'll be so grateful for this help. In the meantime, enjoy today's show, and remember, you can always email us on producer at america-explained.com with any questions or comments. Wow, well that was quite an election, and it's not even over yet. But as I sit here recording this at around about 1pm Central European time on Thursday, the final results might not be in, but it's pretty clear at this point that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. If we look at the remaining states that, that are still to be counted, the most important data point comes from Pennsylvania. If Biden wins Pennsylvania, it doesn't matter what happens anywhere else, that's it. That's the whole game for him. And he's on track with the way the votes have been counted right now, the, the percentage that he's getting. It looks like he's going to win Pennsylvania quite easily. He may also win Georgia. That might have been announced by the time that you listen to this podcast, but that's not necessary for him. And there's, there's also some question over the results in Nevada and Arizona, but this overall, the situation is looking very, very favorable to Biden. What I'm going to do in this episode is just to talk through some of the things that we've learned in this election and, and a couple of implications going forward when we start to think about what the future of American politics might look like given this victory by Biden. You know, in, in this podcast so far, I, I, I always intended that this was going to be an interview show mainly. But then also I was going to do episodes where I would offer my own commentary and, and just talk about things a little bit from my perspective. And this means kind of letting you in on, on what I think and, and my political views a bit more than the interview show does. In the interviews, I really want to bring forward dive or bring together diverse voices, uh, voices from all over the political spectrum so that people have an opportunity to hear from different points of view. And over the coming months, we're going to be hearing from Republicans, Democrats, and everyone in between. But, you know, in, in, in these shows where, when I offer my perspective, you know, you're going to hear where I'm coming from. And it probably doesn't surprise you that I come at this from a pretty liberal perspective. So I am very happy that Joe Biden is, has won the election. I shared the, the concern and the consternation that many of us had early on Tuesday night as the results came in. The, the result wasn't as overwhelming for Biden as the polls anticipated it was going to be, and that gave us some kind of scary moments on, on Tuesday night. 
So I want to reflect on on this whole kind of collection of issues to do with, you know, the, the polls, um, how Biden performed, what that means for the future of the Democratic Party, what it means for the future of the Republican Party. So this isn't so much going to be a show where I'm, I'm going to just analyze the, the results, but I want to talk about the implications of the results, because that's the, that's the conversation that we need to start having now going forward. The first thing to say is that you know, Biden's victory, although it didn't match the expectations which had been set by the polls, is still extremely, extremely impressive. It's incredibly rare in American history for an incumbent president to lose re-election. And that's even rarer when the economy is going well, as it was doing before the coronavirus hit. So only a couple of times in in modern American history has an incumbent president lost re-election. So for Biden to have won this election is very impressive from that point of view. It looks like he's heading for a margin in the popular vote of somewhere between 3 and 6%. This is also a convincing margin. He's, he's, he's not just won the plurality of voters, but it looks like he's going to win the majority of American voters. So over 50% of American voters chose Joe Biden as their next president. And of course, that's something that Donald Trump was never able to say because he lost the popular vote in 2016. And even though he's always wanted to style himself as you know the people's president, the president of the common man, he was not the choice of the average American voter. The, the median voter voted for Hillary Clinton. But Joe Biden now really has the opportunity to seize this mantle of the people's president. You know, he's combined a popular vote win and an electoral college win. And this also, you know, is an interesting statistic that tells us something more about, about the broader structure of American politics right now which is that the Democrats have won the popular vote in the last seven of eight presidential elections. Never before in American history has one party won the popular vote in seven out of eight elections. So the Democratic Party is broadly popular. It's doing well in elections. Biden has had a convincing and an impressive victory to unseat Donald Trump in this election. But on the negative side, we, we can't ignore the fact that the win is not as resounding as was predicted. So the polls led us to believe that Biden would win the popular vote by something in the region of 8, 9 or 10 percent, that he would probably win Florida, that he would win much, much more convincing margins in the upper Midwest. Even what's actually happened is that he lost Florida. He's going to win the popular vote by probably four or five percent less than the polls predicted. And he's only won these Midwestern states by very, very small margins in the end. So we should be absolutely honest in saying that this was not the broad based repudiation of Donald Trump that many, many Democrats and liberals expected, including myself, and that the polls predicted. Democrats also failed to take the Senate, which was seen as something that they were likely to do over the, especially over the last few weeks of the campaign. And this has all sorts of consequences for their ability to govern going forward, which I'll talk about in a minute. So yes, this has been an impressive election for Democrats, but it hasn't been the sort of landslide, the sort of huge cathartic sweeping away of Trumpism that frankly many of them anticipated. 
and that many of them desired in order from their perspective to restore their faith in America and its democracy. And it's worth pausing for a minute just to to focus on the conversation that's now taking place among liberals about this election result. So many commentators on the left, so many uh, figures aligned with the Democratic Party are really struggling with what from their view is an incomprehensible fact that such a large portion of Americans still stuck with Donald Trump after everything that he's done. And I'm hearing a lot of anger and frustration from liberals, from figures on the left, directed at the voting public for not sharing their view of Donald Trump. Frankly, I share much of that anger and frustration. But I think it's also worth, you know, we need to look a bit deeper and we need to realize that this is a symptom of two things. So one of those things is just this complete fundamental disconnect that increasingly exists between the two separate Americas, Blue America and Red America. They have such wildly different views of the world and of what's important. The second point, which is very related, is that I think so much of this is related to the type of media that people consume and that they see the world through. You know, the the rise of social media and particularly Facebook, which is very, very, very important for the ways that especially right-wing voters in the US come together to share information and, and shape their views of the world, this media is now so polarized that they barely any longer live in the same reality. And one of the really kind of strongest elements of this polarization is the way that it's built on dislike of the other side, actually often more than it's built on admiration for one's own side. So this is what political scientists call negative polarization, and they've done all sorts of experiments to show that the main thing that motivates voters on both the right and the left is hatred of the other side and a desire to keep the other side out of power. And this is one of the reasons that Donald Trump is able to maintain his grip so strongly on his own base, many of whom, you know, I mean, obviously there are very, very fanatical Trump voters who like everything that he does, but there's also a big group of Trump voters who we tend not to talk about so much, who actually don't particularly like his tweets, they don't particularly like his vulgar language, you know, they don't particularly like many of the things that he does, But what they do like is that they see him as someone who's really going to take the fight to the other side and beat the other side. And that's what they want out of him because it's more important to them to beat the Democrats than it is that, you know, the person who is is in their corner is a perfect individual. So one of my main takeaways from this election, and of course this is provisional until we have more data and we understand more what happened, but it's that this force of polarization is just so incredibly strong in American society that I wonder if almost nothing can overcome it anymore. If you had told me four years ago that a president could systematically engage in racist rhetoric, that that same president would ignore and downplay a public health crisis that's cost the lives of over 200,000 Americans, and at the same time, suggest that those Americans could inject bleach into their lungs as a way of curing a respiratory illness, that that same president could suggest that they were not going to respect the results of a peaceful election and maintain America's tradition of a peaceful transition of power, 
If you told me that a president was going to do all of that things, I would have said that president is going to get crushed in a landslide when the election comes around. And Donald Trump didn't. And the consequences of that are very, very profound for American politics. That a president who is, I think, indisputably the worst president in modern American history, if not all of American history, still in this political environment only loses the popular vote by four or five or at the outside six percent. Something very, very radical has changed about American politics. And that thing is just this insane degree of polarization. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. The fact that Democrats didn't meet the expectations set for them also raises pretty profound questions about the polling industry. You know, the polls in some of the states this time seem to have been very, very badly wrong. Now, it's going to take a while for all of the data to come in and for us to kind of figure out, you know, on average, how did the polls do in this election? And it's likely that actually overall they they didn't perform too badly. And, you know, the, 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 the national popular vote estimate is not going to be too far off. But in some states, the the performance was atrocious. So particularly in Florida and Wisconsin, it looks like, you know, Wisconsin is going to be about seven or eight percent away from where the polls thought it was going to be. Florida is about five or six percent away from where the polls thought it was going to be. Now, there's particular reasons why Florida is kind of a hard state to poll. Um, A lot of this has to do with the, the existence of a very fluid Hispanic community and you know, uh, Trump's victory in Florida had a lot to do with huge swings towards him by Cuban Americans and Venezuelan Americans who were very responsive to his message about socialism and very grateful for his foreign policy towards Cuba and Venezuela. And that uh, that community is it's hard to poll. It's actually hard to to know the views of that community. Wisconsin is is much more difficult to understand. We we really can't tell what happened there at this moment. We're going to need to wait for more information. But, you know, the how badly the polling industry seems to have performed in, in at least some states over the last couple of election cycles raises a pretty profound question because opinion polls are actually very, very important in a democracy. We need to have some way of knowing what our fellow citizens are thinking about public issues. If we don't, then we're often, you know, what are we making policy on the basis of? Elections don't happen very often. Politicians in between elections are very responsive to what the opinion polls say as a way of deciding what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And if, you know, the polling industry just is not that good at actually finding out what is the opinion of citizens in modern America, that's a really consequential problem. And it's something that that the industry really needs to, to work on. And in the meanwhile, we're left really wondering about whether we can know what American citizens are thinking about important issues of public policy. The next thing I want to talk about is the way that Donald Trump has reacted to this bad news that he's been getting so far. 
So before the election, you know, Donald Trump basically laid the groundwork for rejecting the result. You know, he was already claiming that there's massive voting fraud taking place uh, by postal votes in key swing states. This is completely inaccurate. It's just it's just a flat out lie. But as the votes have been counted and they're not going in Donald Trump's favor, he's resurrected this line as many people suggested that he would. He's uh, initiated court cases which are trying to interfere with the count. So what, you know, how has this unfolded and, and are things going badly? Are we in some kind of, you know, nightmare scenario here where Trump is going to try and overturn the election result? My answer to that question is that I don't think that we are. I think that we should take what's happening extremely seriously. We should recognize that it's a profound breach of American political norms, a profound breach of democratic norms for the president to be questioning the, the result in this way. It's also, you know, and it, this brings me back to this question of how can so many people have voted for a person who acts in this manner, who engages in these kind of conspiracy theories around the election and, and doesn't care what damage he does to the legitimacy of democratic political institutions. So this is a dangerous moment and it needs to be risen to, it needs to be resisted. But on the other hand, I think that if we are too afraid of what's happening, then we, we give it more power than it deserves. Trump's efforts so far have frankly been quite farcical. So he's demanded that the counting of votes stop in those states where he's currently winning and he's demanded that the counting continue in the states that he's currently losing. So there's just no consistency to it, that the cynicism is so obvious. It led, led to this kind of funny moment where a group of Trump supporters in Detroit surrounded a counting office and demanded that the votes not be counted. So they, they were chanting, stop the count, stop the count. Well, at that very moment, Joe Biden was winning in Michigan. So had the count stopped, that would have meant that Joe Biden won and Donald Trump lost. So his strategy is so inconsistent that even his own followers can't keep up. There's also this issue of, of court cases and legal challenges that many people are worried about. You know, people are saying, what if he goes to the Supreme Court and he tries to have the result invalidated somehow? The recent ascension of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court has a lot of people wondering, you know, whether now the court has such a clear um, Republican majority, maybe it would just side with Donald Trump and somehow invalidate the result of the election. I think that, you know, this is extremely, extremely, extremely unlikely. What many casual observers of this situation perhaps don't realize is that you know, it's simply not the case that Donald Trump can just turn up on the steps of the Supreme Court and say, hello, I'd like to invalidate the result of this election. And they'll say, okay, please come inside. How this works is that, you know, to, to get some kind of subset of votes thrown out in a key swing state, you need plausible, concrete material evidence of wrongdoing that applies to a specific subset of ballots. So the ability to initiate court cases over this question rests on very, very specific cases where you can demonstrate that something bad has happened. You can't just turn up and try to get the entire election invalidated for some kind of vague hand-wavy reason. And so far in the court cases that the Trump campaign has filed, it's obvious that they really, really don't have a leg to stand on at all. They haven't produced any evidence whatsoever of wrongdoing. 
And you can actually notice that the, their public rhetoric is very, very different to the legal cases that they file. So shortly before the Trump campaign filed a lawsuit in Michigan, which basically revolved around the claim that one poll watcher in one out-of-the-way county had not been allowed sufficient access to um, the counting process to watch it, before they filed this, they gave this huge kind of public speech about how we've seen such irregularities in Michigan and we're going to get the whole result thrown out. But they really are not able to put their money where their mouth is. And I don't think that's going to change going forward. So, you know, these kind of ridiculous challenges been posed by Trump to the result. We have to be vigilant. We have to reject it. But we have to all also not kind of act like this is something that Trump seriously has the power to do. Because if we acknowledge that, we're almost, you know, we're, we're admitting defeat in half the battle already. Trump's actions are illegitimate, they deserve to be laughed out of the court of public opinion and of the actual courts, and I'm confident that's what's going to happen. Fifth point that I want to talk about is, so what's the, the, the consequences of this result and what we know so far for Joe Biden's chances of governing the country effectively? You know, Biden has built a lot of his, um, his image and kind of his rhetoric in this campaign around the idea of unity. So around the idea that he can bring Republicans and Democrats back together to engage in the kind of good old fashioned deal making you know, that Joe Biden remembers from the Senate 40, 50 years ago, because that's how, that's how old he is. The, the fact that Democrats didn't win the Senate means that it's pretty impossible to imagine Biden, you know, achieving great legislative victories in office without this kind of cooperation from some Republican senators. So without the Senate, you can't pass major legislation in the United States. So a lot now hinges on whether Biden's quest for unity is going to pay dividends or not. And it's really too early to know that because we don't know so much about what the future of the Republican Party is going to look like at the moment. When Barack Obama was elected in 2008, um, Mitch McConnell um, held a meeting with the Republican senators and he said, our main priority is to make sure that Barack Obama is a one-term president. And what that meant was basically refusing all cooperation with him on all legislative matters. It's going to be much harder for McConnell to take that same approach this time, at least initially, for the simple reason that America sorely, badly needs economic relief from the coronavirus pandemic. Even cooperation there is not assured, and after a stimulus bill is passed, I think it's anyone's guess what's going to happen, but if you were make forcing me to place a bet, I would say that Republicans are going to be very, very obstructionist and they're not going to cooperate with the Biden administration, you know, hardly at all. What this makes impossible and something that was very important to Democrats going into this election was carrying out reforms in the way that American democracy functions. So ideas such as abolishing the Senate filibuster or rebalancing the Supreme Court or admitting Puerto Rico and DC to statehood in order to rebalance the Senate, all of these things are completely off the table now. They're just not going to happen while the Republicans control the Senate. And 
what this then also means is that this allows Republicans to really hold on to their minoritarian rule. You know, so even though they've lost seven out of eight popular votes in the last elections, Republicans still control the Senate, they still control the Supreme Court today. And Democrats really wanted to do something about that by rebalancing the Senate, by rebalancing the Supreme Court, but that's just not going to be possible. So this is a huge disappointment for Democrats, and it's a huge win for Republicans because it means that going forward, they keep their grip on these institutions that allow them to remain so powerful, even though they and their agenda are so demonstrably unpopular with the American public. That brings me to my final point, which is about the future of the Republican Party. It's really clear from this election that Donald Trump maintains this enormous grip on the Republican base this enormous grip on Republican voters. And it seems to me that if he has the health and he has the intention to keep his grip on the party going forward, there's not much that can stand in his way. I would not be surprised to see Donald Trump running again for election in 2024. And I would be very surprised to see him disappear from the airwaves, disappear from Twitter in the meanwhile. I think we're going to be hearing a lot, lot more from Donald Trump you know, his his grip on his voters is going to be maintained in part by the myth that this election was illegally stolen from him, which, you know, millions or even tens of millions of Americans are going to believe due to those factors we mentioned earlier about, you know, media bubbles and polarization. So I think Donald Trump can maintain that grip on the party. That means that, you know, the the reforms of the Republican Party that that some people have hoped for on the right, such as, for instance, um, making the party appeal more to minority voters, moving it away from kind of the ethno-nationalist politics of the Trump presidency, this is off the table for now. So Donald Trump is going to remain so, so important. He and his um, base, like his supporters, are such an important part of the Republican coalition now and I don't see them going anywhere in the near future. So those are just some reflections from me on what this uh, election outcome means, you know, just initially how to interpret it. As more data comes in, more results come in, we're going to have much more to talk about, much more to say, and I'm going to be bringing you interviews and analysis that help you understand this new era in American politics. So, so long for now. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, you can always email me at producer at america-explained.com. Any questions or comments you have on the show, and I'll be really happy to answer them next time. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.